Well, we have come to the end of the last letter that the Apostle Paul writes. And this ending contains two different areas of living in which Paul is a model for us. You may recall that he often writes in his letters, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we're going to, this Sunday and next Sunday, look at two things that Paul models for us well here. If you would, would you stand? And we will read from 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in the sixth verse. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, Holy Spirit, inspire of this letter. Be pleased to uh, grant us the grace to hear it, to mark it inwardly, to receive its instruction, and to grow in grace. To your glory we pray this. Amen. Amen. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus, to Demaltia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Tychius I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. You may take your seats. Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary defines the word resilient with two definitions. The first is uh, this, the capacity of a a strained body to recover its size and shape after deformation caused especially by compression stress. Means your pillow, (laughs) 
recovers in the morning uh, after you're finished uh, laying your head on it or your foam uh, mattress uh, levels out. The second uh, definition is this, the ability to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune or change. Trevor Marcicano uh, was a speed racer, an ice uh, uh, racer. And his picture could be uh, placed in the dictionary uh, by this uh, word. When he was 15, he was in qualifying rounds at the Junior World National uh, Championship. And um, uh, there, as he was skating on the ice, he tried to come around another skater, but that skater fell. And his uh, skate ran across uh, his thigh. And as he looked at his thigh, he saw uh, the white of his femur. And he lost half of his blood volume. He had immediate emergency surgery. It took him three months uh, to recover some of his uh, strength to get back on the ice, but it took a full year to have full recovery and to begin training uh, once again. Three years later, uh, Trevor uh, was the youngest gold medalist in the sport. Uh, having broken the one minute and seven second record for skating 1,000 meters. That's got to be astonishingly fast. He uh, placed second in the 1,500 meter, and he uh, received uh, bronze in the Winter Olympics in the 500 meters. But his getting there wasn't easy. Uh, as a teen, he suffered with depression, as well as this most serious uh, injury. His life uh, verses from the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, except the way God does things, who can straighten what he's made crooked? Enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember that nothing is certain in this life. If we were to look at the life of the Apostle Paul, we would see the life of a man who exhibited extraordinary resilience. We know more about Paul than anybody else in the Bible except uh, for Jesus. About 20 years after he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, uh, Damascus excuse me, he, he comments about his experience with these words. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And in another letter just a year or two later, he writes, 
but whatever anyone else dares boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes lest one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? His fellow Jews misunderstood him, hated him, betrayed him, and even the churches he served, to whom he's writing uh, these uh, letters, resisted him. They undermined his ministry. Uh, They questioned his sincerity. Uh, they opposed him. He suffered hardship. It's just hard to imagine anybody experiencing all the hardship that he did, the beatings, the imprisonments. He was left for dead on several occasions as he carried out Christ's commission for him. Yet in all this, he kept going. Uh, He wasn't uh, defeated. Ten years after he wrote that note, he entered prison. It was the first time he went to Rome and was imprisoned. Eventually he was acquitted, he was released, he traveled for two years, and now in this letter we find him once again in Rome and in prison. Paul has much to teach us about the resilient life. And we need resilience. There are stresses that come to everyone that bend us out of shape, pressures that push us beyond our limits, things get broken, we get hurt, conflicts, mistakes, adversity, heartache. They come to all of us, every one of us. Everyone needs resilience. And Paul models three of the traits that we need to develop in our own lives. Like Paul, resilient people admit they have needs. Resilient people know how to reach out to ask for help. And resilient people believe that other people can change. Paul says, I urge you therefore to be imitators of me, Elsewhere, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul is an example for us in that as a resilient person, he admits he has needs. Now, Paul's writing from a prison cell 
And um, here uh, he mentions a number of factors uh, that have taken place. One of them is he mentions the name of a man named Alexander the Coppersmith, uh, who's played probably a part in his uh, arrest, someone who deeply opposed the message of the gospel. And, and it's likely that's true, but we can be certain uh, that what Paul means when he says he wants Timothy uh, to come as soon as possible, that he asks for his cloak and he wants his books. Paul is lonely, Paul is cold, and winter is coming, and he is bored. He wants something to occupy his mind as he waits uh, for the outcome of his trial. Now, it's pretty easy when you hear about his life to come to the conclusion that he, there's something really different about this man. He couldn't possibly be anything like us or anybody we've ever encountered. And, and I have to admit, as I've pondered his life, I, I think he absorbed an enormous amount of punishment. And his body probably showed the evidence of it in many, many uh, ways. But Paul tells us himself that his jar of clay in which the treasure of the Holy Spirit indwells. The Holy Spirit's presence in his life didn't mean that he didn't get hungry or cold or lonely or that the physical, emotional, and relational beatings that he took didn't actually hurt and take a toll on him. Now, a lot of people, and in my experience, it's probably more men than women, but by no means are there no women. A lot of people have trouble admitting that they have needs. Some people have trouble admitting they have physical needs. My mother uh, was a child of the Depression, and she constantly lived in fear that she didn't have enough, but she would never ask for help. It was just deeply ingrained in her that she needed to be self-sufficient and independent. And many, many uh, men, uh, they can't admit that they really need other people in their lives or that they have emotional needs. I think for men in particular, and, and perhaps this has been especially acute in the generations uh, uh, prior to mine and in mine, but maybe not as much for those who are younger, that the role models that have been held up in popular culture and have been reinforced in the church as actually the expression of what it means to be a Christian man are those that could be typified by Jack Ryan and James Bond and Jason Bourne and Jack Reacher, the kind of people who single-handedly uh, save uh, the world. It's pretty much all by themselves that they pull off these amazing feats. And while these stories are very entertaining, they're very misleading about the nature of what it means to be a human being, and in particular, a man. They deny the most fundamental uh, teaching about how God has rescued us, that God himself became truly human, that he was limited, he was weak, that he got hungry, 
and thirsty, that he could be betrayed, uh, that he uh, bled, and that he suffered. And some people, perhaps some of you, actually think that being spiritual means being self-sufficient. There is only one being in the universe that is self-sufficient, and that is the living God. Uh, Paul does not see it as a lack of faith or weakness to admit that he's lonely, cold, and bored. Are you able to admit you have needs? Does it, does it seem to you a weakness to admit you have, have a need? Does your, is your ego such that it just, it just grates against the grain in your life to acknowledge that you don't have it all together, that you can't make everything in your life work the way you long to? Paul does what I think is hard for most uh, men. He reaches out. He knew he needed to ask for help, and uh, he wasn't just going to tough it out. Resilient people know how to reach out. They know how to ask for help. Paul knew that he needed other people. Uh, As a man, he knew that he needed other men in his life. And he had a, a large circle of people who were very important in his life. It wasn't just Timothy. These names, these personal names, I've rattled off here. Uh, Luke, Mark, Tychius, Titus, Crensus, among many others, including women that are mentioned at the end of his letters. These people played uh, essential roles uh, in his life. In fact, he never went anywhere without uh, other men and women in his uh, company. It's been well documented that one of the effects of the pandemic has moved people to a greater isolation than they had before it began. And studies have been done about men in particular about how many friends they have. And a large percentage of American men have none. The next chunk has one, but very few men in America have several meaningful, deep uh, friendships. They believe that they should be able to navigate all of life on uh, their own. And if you ask most men who are married who is their friend, they will have only one person, and it will be their wives. Now, here's the thing, uh, and I want to say this to you uh, uh, young men who aren't uh, married and to you young ladies uh, who may. Uh, A close relationship with a woman tends to do two things at the same time in a man's life. She will meet some of your needs. It'll be so good. (laughs) Uh, Her strengths and insights will really fill some gaps in your life. And at the same time, a whole new set of inadequacies will show up. Every place wholeness comes, there will be some places that will be revealed as weak. 
to invite a woman uh, close into your life means she just might point out your flaws. The best wives do that for their husbands. And men on the whole don't take very kindly uh, to it. They either run and hide, or they go on the offensive and fight, or they freeze up like a deer in headlights. Now, none of these are really helpful responses, and again, I'm speaking in terms of men. Um, I know men better than I know women and their responses in in all of this. Uh, So so bear with me. Um, These are simply not helpful responses. When a woman pursues a man with a criticism, something he needs to work on, exposes uh, some inadequacy or flaw, most men look for a cave. And the more relentlessly she uh, pursues him, the further back into the cave he goes until he finds a rock to roll uh, in front of it. Um, uh, He will withdraw. Uh, uh, He will even abandon the relationship instead of acknowledging uh, what is true. Some men fight back. Uh, Some men, especially if they're verbal, will use uh, words for every criticism uh, leveled. Uh, They will find two or three uh, to level on their own against uh, their wives. Um, uh, When that escalates, the marriage becomes a cold uh, place. And often a man responds uh, when the wife won't let it go by becoming controlling, dominating, and even punishing. And to the most extremes, he becomes abusive, verbally, uh, uh, emotionally, and physically. Man, you can live at home in the very same house as your wife, but break the very spirit of the covenant of marriage as God intends. Now, below these behaviors is shame. And shame fools many a man. You see, this is the very pattern we see in the opening of the Bible. Adam totally fails in the Garden of Eden. Adam covers up and he hides. God pursues him. So how do you hide from an all-knowing, omnipresent, all-powerful God? Well, he's already in your hiding spot. And he can push back the bushes and say, boo. Shame doesn't have to control. Uh, Jesus died for our sins, our failures, and for all the times that we blew it. Jesus took upon himself both our guilt and our shame. Everything about us that doesn't measure up, every indication that life has, that people message to us, that uh, we are not who we should be. Jesus did that. He bore that so that we might be free, so that we could face them and bring them to him. And you begin to experience freedom from shame when you're deeply honest, when you have the integrity to acknowledge that the inside of your life and the outside of your life don't look the same when you can admit you actually need help 
and that you can't manage everything in your life on your own or be all that you should be. This deep honesty is hard for many, many men, actually, uh, to get to, and often they don't get to it until their 50s and 60s, uh, because it means acknowledging what's going on inside of you. And that means facing uncomfortable thoughts, emotions that are turbulent, even fears, and reactions that you have that are counterproductive, that push people away. And beyond honesty, once you get honest, even just a little honest, you have to take the step of initiating and developing deepening relationships. If you're a man with other men, and if you're a woman with other women, people whom you can trust, with whom you can be honest, who can uh, hear from you the things that are really going on and keep them in confidence. People, in other words, who are safe. Resilient people are not isolated. They have a circle of close people in their lives. Who's in your inner circle? What are their names? When were you last with them? When did you give them not just a few minutes of quality time, but also a quantity of time? Resilient people admit they have needs, they know how to reach out, and they learn how to repair the past. They learn from the past. Uh, They've learned how to squeeze wisdom out of what they've experienced in life for the future. And an essential part of that is to be able to forgive, to break free of holding on to or nurturing hurts and injuries. And one of the marks that you've actually done that is believing that people can change. Resilient people believe that other people can change. Paul says, get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Well, 10 years earlier, Paul had objected to taking Mark on the second missionary journey uh, when his partner, his ministry partner Barnabas, wanted him. Why? Well, Mark had been a quitter. In in the face of opposition, uh, Mark abandoned the mission. But Mark has now matured, and Paul is more than willing to recognize that change. The person he once rejected is now a valued co-worker. We are badly mistaken when we evaluate people based on outdated information. And while their history cannot be erased, and there are actions that uh, we take that have lasting consequences, still people change. They grow, and we need to acknowledge that. Paul elsewhere says, love keeps no record of wrong. Love hopes all things. It hopes for growth and change in people. And this is exactly what's happened 
in Mark's life, and perhaps also in Paul, as he comes to see the real value that Barnabas saw in this man. If you don't learn to repair the past, to repair relationships, you will end up isolated. If you can only relate to people who have never hurt you, then the number of people you relate to will gradually dwindle down to zero. There's a a famous C.S. Lewis uh, quote where he describes how it is that you can protect yourself from hurt. And he says, take your heart and put it in a steel box and bury it six feet under the ground. You see, you can't relate to people without living with the risk that you'll be hurt. You can't be resilient without other people in your life who will be honest with you and who can also receive the truth about themselves. Who are those people that populate your inner life? Who will walk along with you through life? If you're married, certainly your spouse should be one of those people. But they cannot carry all the weight of that. What's holding you back? You tell yourself, all I need is Jesus? Well, that may... uh, in your mind, justify why you're alone, but it's certainly not what Jesus uh, says. It's not what the New Testament teaches. Often people say this because they either don't want to be inconvenienced by other people, or they don't want to enter into the messiness of relationships. Perhaps you'll say, "I'm, I'm too busy. Well, busyness is a condition that has happened in your life because of choices you've made. You cannot make some of those choices. You will not do this if you are resistant to being challenged. If you decide you are above correction, that no one could possibly understand your life or what you've been through. It is so easy to erect walls. I know people who have a great sense of humor, and they use it continually to hold people at bay. There are uh, people who are so focused on some cause or issue that there are no relationships uh, that are meaningful to them. There's nobody who can even say to them, you know what, there's more to life than that issue, uh, as important as it may uh, be. And I've said this already, but it bears repeating. It may be that you're so afraid of being hurt because you have been hurt, so afraid that you'll be betrayed, that it simply doesn't feel it's worth the risk to open yourself up to other people. Now, there are more traits that make up a resilient life, and I'm sure that if we did a a thorough study of Paul's life, we'd see uh, more of them. Gordon MacDonald was a pastor, uh, a prominent pastor in New England, in a place where it was very hard to grow a church past 250. He had a very large uh, congregation. 
and he had a profound moral uh, failure in his life, though by the time that happened, he was already well-known as a speaker and as an author. Wisely, the church engaged in a process of disciplining him. Uh, His marriage uh, entered into counseling and uh, was uh, restored, and eventually he was restored to ministry not to the ministry he had before, but to a different kind of ministry where he himself entered in the lives of other pastors who had failed and who had to leave the ministry. He is now 84 years old. He's actually a pastor emeritus of the church that he served. He's been the chancellor of a seminary, and he wrote a book about the resilient life. He says a few things. I I want to finish by just reading these three short quotes. First, simply talking about uh, the issue of resilience doesn't get you very far, nor is there much value in talking about how badly everyone else needs it, though, of course, I've tried to make that case. No, resilience belongs to the person who pursues it relentlessly for him or herself. Developing resilience is demanding, and it's mostly done in secret, and it's often humbling, and it is not always fun. And the pursuit of resilience is difficult to measure on a moment-by-moment basis. It is a long-term investment with your life. Let's pray. Gracious uh, Lord, you know and search every heart. Press this into our lives, each of us, in the way that we need it. Thank you that there is abundant grace for us to respond to you and to imitate Christ as we see him in Paul. Amen.